Hi, this is Aaron Weinock. I'm here with new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. And uh, today we're talking with uh, Don Ostrowski, uh, and specifically we're discussing his new book on Europe, Byzantium, and the Intellectual Silence of Rus Culture. So uh, thanks for uh, being with us, Don. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, could you start off by giving us a little background uh, on uh, on who uh, you are, where, where you teach, uh, what got you interested in Russian history, where you went to school, things of that nature? Well, uh, I can begin. Uh, my chief claim to fame is um, I was born in the same hospital that Taylor Swift was born in. <laughs> West, West Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, of course, uh, we were different generations, so we had different gynecologists. Um, <laughs> she, she, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of hers, uh, but she's never heard of me. So there you are. Um, we, um, well, I, I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, and um, Wound up my freshman year uh, at college. I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. My uh, sophomore year, I went to what was then called Kutztown State College, which is north of Reading. And then for my junior and senior years, I went to University of California, Berkeley, where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, subsequently, I uh, taught... Uh, secondary school, elementary school. And that experience teaching secondary and elementary school convinced me <laughs> that I did not want to become a secondary or elementary school teacher. I wanted to become a college teacher. Um, so I went to, um, I was still in California at the time. I went to San Francisco State, got my master's degree and then came back to Pennsylvania, to Penn State, to get my PhD, which was very fortuitous for me, because right at the same time, um, a um, scholar by the name of uh, Sergei Vasilyevich Utekin was hired at Penn State, and he had had a rather uh, interesting career. He was um, born, raised in the Soviet Union, but during World War II, got caught up in this, this displaced persons and wound up in Kiel, Germany, where um, he, he had gone to Moscow State University and, and had experienced people like S.O. Schmidt and others, um, and but wound up at Kiel and uh, got a, a degree there and then went to England um, for uh, a number of years, knew Isaiah Berlin and various other people. He wrote a, a history of Russian political thought and then wound up at Penn State just at the time when I got there. And um, I consider him to be my mentor. Um, uh, he's, he's the one who really, uh, you know, before then, you know, I, I love studying history, I, you know, written papers for courses, research papers, and um, thought I was pretty good. And uh, he made me realize, um, no, I really didn't, I didn't know the methodology. Uh, and, and that is something that's essential. So that, that his 
um, teaching of methodology was really what gave me a way to approach the subject matter rather than just read a lot and write a lot. There was actually a, a purpose, <laughs> uh, a method to what, what the, the way I was approaching it. So when it came time to do my dissertation, I, I got interested in this topic through one of his seminars on um, early Muscovite, early Rus history on uh, the um, Church Council of 1503. But of course, Penn State did not have the library support for that. They, it's a very good library, but it, it's geared more for modern studies. And also, he felt that he wasn't uh, the appropriate person to uh, give me the guidance I needed to do uh, a dissertation on that topic. So uh, another professor there, George Entine, wrote to a friend of his at um, Harvard, who taught at Harvard, a fellow by the name of Edward L. Keenan, and said, what do, what do we do with this guy? He wants to do, <laughs> do this uh, dissertation on, on 16th century Muscovy, and uh, uh, we're kind of stuck with him. So uh, Ned uh, said, well, send him up here. I'll, I'll make sure I take care of him. I'll get him access to the library. And, and uh, it, what Keenan did for me was kind of a, a, a second mentor. He, he included me in the weekly meetings with his graduate students. And in the spring uh, of that year, that was um, in 1973-74, uh, he turned over his uh, graduate seminar, um, which had 10, 12 students in it, to looking at the issues surrounding the 1503 Church Council. I mean, who could ask for a greater gift than this than to have 10 or 12 graduate students writing papers on your dissertation topic? Yes, that would be nice. Yes. Yeah, so when I went to the Soviet Union to do research the, the following year, I, I was loaded. I, kn I knew exactly what I wanted to look at, what I wanted to, um, uh, the questions I was asking of the materials. Um, and, but even so, um, it, it was um, a bit of um, a surprise to me when I got there to do the research on the manuscripts because up to that point, I had thought, assumed, that the published editions, and, and, and most of the, the sources I was using were published, not all, but most, that they were accurate representations of the manuscripts. And um, just as a kind of afterthought, I said, well, I'll, I'll I, I think I'll just check to see how they do this, more, more to learn how to edit um, a, a source from a manuscript. And then I said, well, wait a minute. What it says here in the published version, that's not what's in the manuscript. They, they changed something here, and they didn't say anything. <laughs> it was kind of a tacit changing of things. Um, now, granted, most of the changes were not you know, significant content-wise, uh, but there were some, and and some of the changes 
uh, in the published version over what the manuscript copies said, did mislead, on occasion did mislead scholars. Uh, so I that led me to go back over all of the published versions, check all of the manuscript copies, um, as, as many as I could. I couldn't get to all of them for various reasons. Uh, one of them uh, I didn't get to until 15 years later. It was in Nova Sibirsk. And my Ruka Vidicho, uh, uh, Rusin Skrinikov, uh, said, well, I can't justify your going to Nova Sibirsk for one manuscript. <laughs> well, when one is a codicologist, as I was felt I was developing into, you go to the ends of the earth <laughs> for one manuscript. So I managed to get back to the Soviet Union um, 1989 and on a tourist visa and um, um, put in that I was going to Novosibirsk and, and finally saw that manuscript. And there's a whole other story uh, in, involved with that. Um, but the, uh, uh, the, up, the upshot was that the, the, I did finish the dissertation in the 1970s before I, I saw that manuscript. Uh, and, but in the meantime, uh, when I was at Harvard, I became, uh, I, I started attending a, an informal seminar that was um, included Ned Keenan, Igor Shevchenko, Omelian Pritzak, and Horace Lunt. And for people in the field, these are, you know, like the superstars. <laughs> um, and they would meet once a week with assorted graduate students, postdocs, anybody who wanted to attend, to discuss the Rus Primary Chronicle, Povis Veneminiklet. And Horace Lunt was doing a translation of it. And he was doing it on the fly. He would basically, he would. Um, a week ahead, he would type up um, a couple pages of translation. And the rule was that, uh, at, at least for the, the top four uh, primary investigators, they would not look at uh, Samuel Cross's translation. Uh, they wanted to do a translation anew without any uh, influence from Cross. Uh, so they, when Lunt would type up these pages, he would hand them out to all of us a week before. Then we'd have a week to go over it. And we would rarely get more than half a page <laughs> at the next session, through a half a page at the next session, because session, because they, they were going over every word, every phrase, bringing in uh, all sorts of uh, arcane knowledge, uh, making comparisons. And in itself, that seminar, that weekly seminar, was an education. Um, it, it, it went on for many years. The, uh, the Lunt finally finished the translation. It hasn't been published yet. That, so that, he, he completed it, well, uh, now, 
30, 40, almost 40 years. It's due to come out. But the, the um, uh, one of the problems with it was that uh, he, he, he tried to do it, the transition to English was not all that readable. It, it was accurate in terms of representing what the Russian language was, but uh, it didn't. Uh, and he kept saying that he would go back over it and, and polish it up and make it readable. Uh, it, he did not com- completely succeed before he died. But in the meantime, um, I noticed something um, about their, since I had developed this, this habit of going back to the manuscripts, I started comparing, they were, they were translating from uh, Dmitry Likhachov's uh, Russian edition uh, of the Povis Remini Hlet. And um, I went back and looked at the, well, the published versions of the, of the manuscripts. And noticed that there were problems with Lichachov's text. He, he, he was not uh, a- accurately representing the, the manuscripts. And uh, so I wrote it up in a memo. Um, at first, uh, well, Keenan was supportive. Shevchenko was dismissive at first. But then when I brought in more evidence, they all agreed that we needed a new edition of the PBL. And they said, Don, you're the person to do it. And I said, I don't think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of a hanger on here. I'm a fly on the wall. And I just happened to notice something because of my experience with, with the manuscripts in the Soviet Union. Uh, so they, um, they said, well, no, we want you to do this new edition. So I spent a number of years working on it. It finally uh, did come out. Um, and two, 2003 or something and like that. Uh, and, uh, but being at Harvard, I, I, I would joke, you know, I, I was, early on, I was trying to get out of Harvard. I was trying to get a job, a real job, uh, teaching at a college or university someplace as, as my colleagues were. And so I was applying all over the place. Uh, anything that came up that, that looked halfway uh, that, that I could qualify for, I, you know, like New Zealand, I was applying, I applied to Jamaica, uh, Elon College, North Carolina, just everything. And um, I would get rejected. Not I wouldn't even get to interviews. Um, so I don't know if it was my dissertation topic that was put off in, um, but the, um, uh, so I, I would joke that uh, Harvard was the only place that would hire me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was having a similar thought there when you were saying that. Uh, so it was a blessing in disguise because I got to be close to Widener Library my entire career. Um, and Widener Library, for those of people who don't know of it, it's, it, it is a scholarly heaven. <laughs> um, uh, it's just wonderful. You, you, you know, you're reading something in, in some article or book, and they, and they cite some obscure 
work and you know we used to go to the card catalog now we go to hollis look it up there it is it's it's in it's in Widener library sitting on the shelf waiting for you to come it hasn't been used in 30 years and there it is um so uh that that the i also say that the reason i'm i'm here in cambridge is because of widener library which there's a certain element of truth uh, to that but long story short getting pulling back to where we uh uh purpose of this interview in the 1990s well late 1980s 80s 90s a fellow by the name of francis thompson was doing some meticulous exquisite work on early ruse um texts sources um magnificent linguistic work uh and and uh really quite good However, he would write these very detailed articles that, you know, just chock full of information and and brilliant insights and and so forth. And at the end, he would throw off this statement like, uh, well, uh, the Russians were backward because of the church. (laughs) And it just took people back because in in the field that that's not a value judgment we make um we make plenty of other value judgments but not that the church held things back um the 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 um the alternative to that is some other scholars would say well no it was the mongols the mongols held things they cut off uh, Rus from uh, Europe, and, and that's what held them back. Uh, neither of those, uh, I think, is a, is a uh, can be uh, supported with the evidence. But it's how 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 does one explain the um, the the fact that Europe, Western Europe especially um, in Italy, France, England, really took off in the Middle Ages intellectually. But Eastern Europe, uh, including given given the uh, given principalities, Muscovy, did not. Um, How does one explain that? So that's what uh, led to the writing of uh, of this particular book. I will say this in addition, being, I was hired at the Harvard Extension School in 1982 to teach courses. And that's kind of an adjunct position at, at the time. It was a yearly contractual uh, agreement. But then in 1988, they hired me to a regular position as research advisor, advising in a master's program, um, master of liberal arts program, and I advise social science students, history, political science, uh, uh, international relations, uh, medieval studies, and so forth. 
But as a result of uh, both my experience with the master's students at Harvard Extension School, and they're allowing me to teach a um, four-semester world history sequence. Um, the, it allowed me to think more about the re relationship of um, Russian studies, early Russian studies, Ukrainian studies, Rus' studies, to the rest of the world, to, to uh, histories that were going on elsewhere in the world. And um, before then, uh, I would say that um, I, I didn't completely have the blinders on as to what was going outside of my particular specialty. But my specialty was my main focus. Um, to give you an example, when I did my dissertation, I would say I was obsessed. Um, for four years, I saw the <laughs> the world through the prism of the 1503 Church Council. Well, you have to. That's the only way you get finished. And and it, for me, it was a labor of love. Uh, um, but when I finished the dissertation, and this is very interesting, um, I got a part-time job teaching at Boston College, and as enjoyable as it was working on my dissertation, I felt suddenly liberated <laughs> because now I could read Dickens. <laughs> I, I didn't have to worry that reading Tale of Two Cities was taking me away from working on my dissertation. <laughs> um, so, so basically the whole world opened up. The other, the other aspect of that is that um, the, when, <laughs> well, you may have had this experience. I don't know. Um, some, some people have. As a graduate student, one knows everything. When, you know, one is, you know, reading uh, the, the scholars in the field and, and you can see where they made mistakes. So you feel that you, you're really very knowledgeable about things. <laughs> you know, it's a very limited knowledge, but you're not aware of that at the time because you're feeling quite proud of yourself. But then when you get your PhD and you have to go out and teach, suddenly you realize you're not as smart as you thought you were. <laughs> you, you, you have to teach things you don't know anything about <laughs> and you yes. have to learn them <laughs> very quickly. Uh, uh, Keenan once used the phrase, the undergraduate, the, the shark eating undergraduates. <laughs> I think that applies. You're facing the students who are saying, okay, uh, Professor Ostrowski, teach me something. Teach me something I don't know. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, uh, you want to know about a manuscript from the 16th century? Uh, so it, 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 the, the other, and, and I'll just mention this briefly, the other aspect was that I went through, uh, along with that beginning to teach part of it, where I suddenly realized I didn't know as much as I thought I did, was that um, the whole, I, I basically went through a, a crisis of, 
I guess one could call it a methodological crisis because yes, I had, you know, Utekin had really instilled in me the importance of methodology. Uh, but once I finished the dissertation, I said, well, you know, I could theoretically, I could turn around and write an anti-dissertation. I, I could write uh, a refutation of my own dissertation because I knew the, the weak spots, you know, where the evidence was, you know, not so sound. Um, and I said, well, is that what historical study is about? You, you write something, you argue a case, and then somebody else argues against you. And I said, well, no, but what really is it? And then that led me into really delving into not just historical methodology, but methodology overall. Uh, in particular, uh, reading uh, people like Karl Popper and, and the whole idea of uh, formulating of research questions, hypotheses, and testing those hypotheses uh, so that one is not arguing a case. One is uh, examining, investigating the evidence uh, and whatever assertions that one reads or one makes oneself, one tests it against the evidence. So every every assertion becomes uh, provisional, tentative, uh, dependent on uh, new evidence or a different way of looking at the old evidence or a different logical argument. Um, and it, it, it creates a sense of insecurity, but for me, it really is the only intellectually honest way to approach it. I don't, I'm, I'm not, that way I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> you know, prosecuting a case or defending a client. I'm, I'm an investigator, a detective. I'm, I'm, I'm more Sherlock Holmes trying to solve a puzzle. Uh, and if my solution isn't correct, well, that's okay. Because I can change my solution dependent on new evidence or, or a better way of explaining the present evidence. Um, so that's, that brings me to, to Europe-Byzantium and the intellectual science of Ruse culture because I, I had gone, I knew Francis Thompson. I had gone to talk with his. And, and um, he, uh, you know, he, he, he would say in his talks, well, you know, where was the Russian Peter Abelard? And um, I, I said, well, you know, that, that maybe <laughs> not the right question to ask. <laughs> and then his response was, uh, well, they didn't have Plato, did they? Uh, and, and it was that kind of dismissive, flippant, <laughs> interpreted by me, not only me, but response that really got me started what was initially supposed to be an article um, that I was going to try to explain what was the uh, why it is that uh, Rus culture was intellectually silent, silent, and and um, 
That goes back to the uh, uh, Father Georges Florovsky. Uh, now, they, who, who published an article in Slavic Review uh, about that. Uh, what was and and Florovsky was someone who was a great admirer of early Rus culture, but he he acknowledged that you know the, <laughs> he didn't he, he wouldn't have couched it in terms of where was the Russian Peter Abelard, but he acknowledged that you know Western Europe, medieval Western Europe, was uh, a, a hotbed of intellectual thought. There, people arguing back and forth, theological concerns. Um, and they, they uh, were bringing in the, uh, uh, the logic of Aristotle. They were influenced heavily by that time, by uh, the high Middle Ages, by uh, Plato and so forth. And then there's scholasticism. Well, where is the equivalent in Rus? history, in early Rus history? And the answer is there isn't. There is an equivalent. And then the question becomes why? Thompson's answer was the church held Rus back. And other people say it was the Mongols. And some people say it's a combination of the two. Both the church and the Mongols held them back. Well, that's, that seemed to me not to be such a, uh, such a, uh, uh, a good answer. Uh, I, I felt that there had to be uh, a better answer. The, well, it's certainly uh, quite teleological. Well, yes, and 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 the other aspect of this um, is is also the Russian the way Russian history is approached in in general, and um, you know, I have. have been aware for some time that their modern modernist post post Petrine. There's there, as you know, there there's um, a traditional divide in Russian history uh, with Peter the Great, uh, and the general notion is, um, and it has been expressed in print by various scholars that. Basically, anything before Peter is not worth knowing. <laughs> it's superstition. It's obscurantism. It's uh, uh, darkness and, and uh, backwardness. And then Peter brings Russia into the modern age, kicking and screaming into the modern age. And then everything is, uh, you know, R Russia at post Peter is now part of the mainstream of, of uh, European culture, you know, type of thing, more or less. Um, the, but for, I, you know, I had begun my graduate studies uh, with uh, European history. I got my master's degree in European history and moved further east when I got into the PhD program at Penn State, moved uh, studying 19th century Russian history. I, I had been interested, got interested in 19th century Russian history at San Francisco State, where Peter K. Kristof was teaching. So I thought I wanted to do 19th century Russian intellectual history 
of some kind. And Utekin would have been perfect for that. I mean, uh, except I got this notion I wanted to do a, a dissertation on the 16th century church council. So, um, so I I kind of understood the the, the view of modernists in Russian history because there's a whole lot going on uh, with Peter's reign and after Peter's reign. And when I made that switch back to studying the 16th century in particular, uh, I, I had basically, I had to relearn a lot. <laughs> uh, as, as Keenan would say, anything written in English is probably wrong. <laughs> about that period. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, the, but then when, when I uh, would look at the, Peter's reign from the viewpoint of earlier, I was not seeing um, a great deal that he had changed. <laughs> um, he was given credit for changing a lot. Uh, I wasn't seeing pre-Petrine Russia as this obscurantist, superstitious, um, backward uh, culture. Uh, but I was seeing antecedents to what occurred in Peter's reign and in the 18th century. And uh, eventually I wrote up an article trying to make the case that we should look at the 18th century as more uh, a unit with 17th and 16th century Russian history rather than putting it in the category with 19th century Russian history. Um, that, that article, of course, fell flat. Uh, people in the field don't want to hear that. Uh, so I, I, do, I do feel that I have an appreciation for uh, earlier Rus culture that um, maybe people who focus on the post-Petrine period um, don't um, it's not that they don't have an appreciation for it, it's that they don't really think about it <laughs> because what we were taught uh and what's in the textbooks is that um, things only really get started with Peter. Um, and uh, yeah, there are icons and you know, certain things, but it, it's only that window on the West, St. Petersburg and bringing Russia into the orbit of European uh, history that then that's what's worth studying. Um, so the, when someone like Francis Thompson was saying, well, the church held Rus back, uh, then it, it kind of goes against that, um, the notion that this, this whole period, uh, this earlier history is something that not only is worth studying on its own, which Thompson certainly did, but it informs us 
about Peter, Peter's reign and the post-Petrine period. Um, it, it increases our appreciation for what comes later um, be, precisely because it's not just backward obscurantism and superstition, that there is a whole lot going on there that um, is worthwhile for anyone studying Russian history or, or Ukrainian history to really know about. Uh, and so that that's that pretty much brings us up to the, this uh, this book we're supposed to be discussing today. So the, the 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 question, and and I took it as um, Thompson's assertion: <laughs> Where was the R Russian Peter, or his question? Where was the Russian Peter Abelard uh, as a challenge to um, why as, as um, uh, was was subsequently asked by Fedotov. Why Paris and not Kiev? Um, Paris was in the eleventh uh, and twelfth centuries was a, uh, uh, a hotbed of intellectual thought, and it it was this issue of the the the, the Neoplatonic construct. Uh, in terms of theology. Theology was a crown jewel of, of discipline studies. And the, the views um, were uh, on one extreme, Bernard of Clairvaux, who said one understands through one's soul, through tears and suffering. That's how one understands the divine soul through one's own soul to the divine soul. Uh, the people like Abelard were not so much into tears and suffering, although <laughs> Abelard suffered misfortunes, uh, but they wanted to understand this at an intellectual level. And what was happening in Western Europe at the time was an influx of texts coming in across the Pyrenees, from Toledo, uh, from the, uh, uh, the Muslim Spain, Al-Andalusia, that the, the Christians, were when they took Toledo, they found a storehouse of Arabic texts, that many of which were translations from the Greek, translations of Plato and Aristotle that... Europeans north of the Pyrenees did not have. Uh, they had what they had was Neoplatonic thought, and they might have had part of one of Plato's writings. They had virtually nothing of Aristotle. Everything was secondhand. And now, with the fall of Toledo, those Arabic texts were being translated into Latin. The the Arabic translations from Greek were being translated into Latin, and now they could get Plato firsthand. Um, 
you know, through this process of translation. And for many of, of the thinkers, it, it was uh, quite eye-opening. Uh, the, there was a period of pushback by the, the, uh, the church against the use of, well, dialectic in particular, but use of critical thinking toward theological matters. Uh, if, if Bernard of Clairvaux is correct that the way to true understanding of the divine is through tears and suffering and prayer and so forth, then there is no room for analysis. <laughs> there, there's no room for uh, dividing things into this and that and, and uh, for the use of dialectic. Uh, there uh, were people who were uh, starting to use uh, dialectic to apply in in in, in uh, France and uh, England and, and Italy. They were starting to use dialectic to question things. Um, well, just the the entire question of uh, transubstantiation. Uh, during the Eucharist, when the priest holds up the host and holds up the chalice with the wine in it, does it really, does the, the, that bread host change really in, into the body of Christ and does the wine really change into the blood of Christ? Even though it still appears to be bread and wine to our human selves. Now, in a Neoplatonic construct, there's no problem with that. <laughs> uh, because this world is a world of illusion. And while we think it's bread, we're, that's a delusion because it is really the body of Christ. <laughs> okay that we are partaking of in communion. Well, um, people like uh, uh, Berengarius of Tours or Rosalanus of Compiègne, they were, they were saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there, there's something that doesn't quite make sense with that. And they were trying to figure this out. Well, the church was pushing back. No, 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 don't, don't apply things of this world to theological matters. Uh, so in, in the middle of that is when Peter Abelard uh, shows up and he, he's you know, a, a, a dialectician uh, par excellence, um, at, at least according to his own account. He was besting everybody in, in, um, in disputation. Sort of like your beginning graduate student, as I recall. Yes, he 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 was. Uh, uh, he could not be accused of uh, uh, lack of confidence. <laughs> uh, so, uh, his, his his Bernard did not like personally did not like what uh, Abelard was doing. Called him a new theologian, which is. A term of derision. Now we we tend to think of new as good, you know, new improved. Uh, well, for for the Middle Ages, uh, anything new was wrong. Uh, 
because all of truth had already been revealed. Okay. Uh, so if it was new, it was not true. Uh, so calling him a new theologian was basically calling a fake theologian. Uh, so Abelard did, did get into some trouble for his views. He, he was called to two councils, uh, Saswan and Sens. Uh, but he was he, he was not declared a her- heretic. Basically, what happened uh, because the church looked at his views in, in uh, askance, not a lot of people picked up on him, at least in 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 the surface uh, outwardly. So by the next century, uh, by the thirteenth uh, century, he was he was pretty much forgotten. In, in Western Europe. And it was only with the discovery of the letters between him and Heloise that he then comes back as, you know, they star-crossed lovers and he gets castrated and she goes into a convent and this type of thing. And it was only hundreds of years later, beginning late Enlightenment and definitely in the 19th century, that Abelard was now then became seen as the champion of, you know, intellectual thought of inquiry of freedom of of uh, the, of thinking. Um, but but nonetheless, there were, there were those. What was happening, dis- <laughs> in part because of Abelard, but in part despite him was the church, some churchmen were already beginning to adopt dialectical thought. Uh, dialectic, and, and here maybe I should explain, it's part of the seven liberal arts, uh, trivium and quadrivium, which was the curriculum in uh, schools in, in medieval Europe. And the trivium was grammar, rhetoric, and dialectic. We, we call it logic. Um, and the quadrivium was uh, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. So one could look at the trivium as the uh, expression of ways of persuading people through grammar and rhetoric and, and logic. And the uh, quadrivium were numbers, <laughs> uh, arithmetic being numbers in themselves, geometry being numbers taking shape, uh, uh, astronomy being numbers in motion, and music being numbers in relationship to each other uh, type of thing. Uh, So all of this was going on in in medieval Western Europe, and and those who were beginning to use dialectic, incorporating dialectic into the church's theological reasoning, like uh, Anselm, with his ontological proof for the existence of God, um, Thomas Aquinas, they they were using dialectic in a way to um, corroborate uh, conclusions that had already been reached through matters of faith. Um, Their guiding principle basically was, yes, we'll use dialectic to defend 
the theology. If dialectic does, if in using dialectic we come to a conclusion that's different from the theological extent, theological views, then it's dialectic that's wrong, not the theology. In counter to that were those who were saying, uh, perhaps if if we reach conclusions on the basis of dialectic and and it doesn't agree with theology, maybe the theology is wrong. <laughs> so you can see that this this would create quite a tension uh, going on in, in Western Europe. And the eventually a compromise of sorts was reached um, after strikes at University of Paris and so forth by the students, um, whereby Plato uh, was used for uh, matters of, of the divine, and Aristotle was used for matters of this world. Uh, and matters of the divine in this construct were superior to matters of this world. So Plato was superior to Aristotle. Uh, but the the dialecticians, the people who were using uh, uh, dialect, people like uh, William of Ockham, <laughs> for example, they couldn't help but question th- this notion that dialectic should be subsumed entirely to theology, as Thomas Aquinas was was doing. Okay, so that's that's the Western. <laughs> medieval European view of things. Well, what about Byzantium? What was going on in Byzantium? Well, something very interesting was going on roughly the same time. Uh, There were Byzantine thinkers who had, uh, you know, they knew Aristotle, they knew Plato. Well, they knew compendiums. Not sure how much of real the direct writings of Aristotle and Plato uh, they had, but um, people like uh, Michael Silos. But one of them uh, was John Attalus, who became the head philosopher um, in Constantinople. And he, like Abelard, loved to best people in disputation. (laughs) Uh, he was using dialectic, you know, to beat people over the head and beat them into submission. Well, uh, this did not sit well with the Patriarch of Constantinople. And the Patriarch and the Emperor were very close. Uh, and eventually, um, there, there were a number of trials of the followers of John Italus, uh, basically squashing this whole dialectical movement in Byzantium. So it never really developed. Uh, don't know if it could have developed the way it did in, in, in uh, France, uh, let's say, in Paris. But um, it was, it, the authorities were not about to give it a chance of doing so in Byzantium. But how does that relate to Rus? 
uh, and that was that was the the question that that Francis Thompson, as, as I took Francis Thompson's question about where was the R- Russian Peter Abelard or or Fedotov's question, why Paris and not Kiev? And part of the answer that I came up with <laughs> uh, was uh, well, first of all. When Rus was Christianized, 988, Volodymyr I sends the people of Kiev en masse into the Dnieper River to be baptized. And Christianity spreads throughout Rus with official sanction now of the prince of Kiev. What, What did... Rus get from Byzantium. And this is something Thompson had had basically pointed out. Uh, What they got was the equivalent of uh, the library of a large Byzantine monastery. That is, and uh, provided an example of this, and I checked. I found the, catalog, the, the library catalog for the, that monastery in, in, in around that time, and indeed, there's a there's a correlation between what was in that monastery and what was available to the Rus in the 11th and 12th centuries in terms of texts that they were that were being translated into Russian. Uh, well, why was that? Um, well, because it was the monks in in Bulgaria uh, who were uh, tasked with uh, providing the information to this newly Christianized area of the world, Rus, uh, that the, the people of Rus needed for the salvation of their souls. Uh, so basically liturgical texts, uh, the Psalter, uh, you know, the, some, some books uh, of, the, of the Bible, the and, uh, Genesis and Exodus. Um, the Gospels, uh, uh, things that they could use in, in church services, uh, 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 efficatory writings, uh, saints' lives. So things that were for the soul. That is, looking at it from the Neoplatonic viewpoint, the soul was all important. So you and and these texts were not meant to introduce new knowledge to the soul but to unlock knowledge that was already there. (laughs) So these these were the keys to one's understanding the divine. Well, okay, so where where is Plato? Where is Aristotle? Where is Sophocles? Where is Euripides? (laughs) Where uh, uh, Pythagoras? Um, Well, that's not necessary. I'm recreating now what I figured was the thinking of the prelates who made this decision. It wasn't necessary for them to know these things, you know, for what purpose? 
you know, that's not going to help save their souls, which is the, the primary purpose of Christianizing them. Besides that, even if they thought, um, the, these prelates in Bulgaria thought that it was necessary for the people of Rus to, to have Aristotle and Plato and so forth, you know, that, that, that kind of influx that occurred in the 11th century in Western Europe from Toledo of Aristotle and Plato texts, they probably would not have utilized them the same way because, and, and, and this, this was an issue that, that I encountered uh, some pushback by Byzantine scholars. I, I'm not convinced, I have not seen sufficient evidence that dialectic, one of the seven liberal arts, which was a standard part of the curriculum in medieval Western Europe, that dialectic was part of the curriculum, school curriculum in Byzantium. You know, I'm not saying that there, there weren't scholars, there weren't people like Psellos who heard John of Damascus, people were aware, uh, but it wasn't taught. Uh, at least I haven't seen evidence, uh, sufficient evidence uh, of that. So even if the seven liberal arts had been transferred from Byzantium to Rus, it probably would not have included dialectic. And dialectic, as, as the uh, the cover of the book, uh, has a uh, uh, a uh, photo of a, a wood carving that uh, one can find at the uh, Hall of Peace in Munster, Germany. And I, after, uh, as I was finishing up writing the book, my wife and I were in Munster and I went to the Hall of Peace and I, they have these wood carvings of the seven liberal arts <laughs> and there was dialectica. And I said, that would make a great cover for, for the book um, because it, it's, it seems to me that that presence or absence of dialectic dialectic teaching was a crucial element in in the difference between what happened first in in western medieval western europe on one hand and what happened in byzantium and uh rus uh on the other now you know, one could say, oh, you know, you're putting too much emphasis on just this one discipline. Oh, yes, they had dialectic in Byzantium and so forth and so on. But the truth of the matter is they did not have it in Bruce. And the question is why? Uh, and, he, and then one could say, well, it, so what? Uh, so what if they didn't have dialectic? They could still have, you know, uh, made the effort to to acquire Plato and Aristotle. Well, it, it goes beyond that. It's not that they didn't have 
to have dialectic, it became a, an opposition to dialectic, an opposition in, in some respects to the seven liberal arts, that these were um, tools of the devil. <laughs> these were ensnarements, ensnarements in things of this world. Uh, and you know, one could learn them to kind of defend oneself against them, uh, uh, but or just not risk the temptation by not learning them at all, just uh, divorcing oneself. Now, in in the uh, in the forum that was in uh, Russian History Journal, um, there was a, a really excellent article by Rob Romanchuk about grammar in medieval Rus. Uh, and as I pointed out in my response in that forum, um, David Goldfrank has uh, written quite a bit on Josef Volovsky's use of rhetoric in, in 16th century uh, Muscovy. But there, uh, the dialectic was not uh, part of, of that, you you can kind of find isolated examples. Kirilla Belozarev's monastery in the middle of the 15th century, for example, but it just was not part of their way of approaching theological matters. So that was my attempt at uh, an explanation that involved not just focusing on the Mongols, not just focusing on on the Rus Church. But looking at it in a cross-cultural way, why Paris and not Kiev? Why was there a Russian Peter Abelard at all? Uh, you know, kind of reversing. You know, not why wasn't there? Uh, why wasn't there a Russian Peter Abelard? But why was there a French Peter Abelard <laughs> uh, to uh, try to get a better? A, a deeper understanding of, of uh, what was going on in, in these Christian cultures that shared so, they had so much in common, but yet went in, intellectually went in different directions. I had a uh, interesting chat uh, some time ago for this uh, podcast with uh, John Givens on a book he wrote about Dostoevsky and uh, Tolstoy and um, oh uh, Pasternak and and uh, Givens uh, makes makes quite a bit of the the conviction which you also bring up in your book about God as being unknowable except in a, in a negative uh, you know apophatic. Uh, since I was wondering, do you think that this this difference you've identified in the book uh, over the use of dialectical uh, uh, inquiry, uh, do you think that does that proceed from the prior conviction that God is fundamentally unknowable, or do you think that the rejection of dialectic in the East is itself what results in the conviction that God is unknowable? I'm asking you, I guess, kind of a chicken and egg type question here. Yeah, I think it's the chicken. <laughs> I I think it began with the ap- apophatic, God is unknowable, and I and I, and the the Western Church also began with that notion. Um, that in, 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 I think I pointed out in the book that 
there you can find examples in both Eastern and Western churches that the the, the way um, to communion with God is through intellectual silence, through silence. Uh, you know, that's why monasteries had rules about silence. <laughs> um, the but dialecticians are not silent. <laughs> dialecticians talk and they argue and they split differences and they make distinctions and um and okay that's fine for the aristotelian part of this world but then when it starts to go into the platonic theological matters that's when the church authorities get their backs up <laughs> because then the apophatic part becomes chipped away at. Um, And, you know, one of the distinctions um, that I see anyway between Eastern church theology and Western church theology is that Western church theology has kind of incorporated this dialectical reason. They've reached an accommodation with it. And, and you can see this with, with the Jesuits. <laughs> um, there's uh, a reason why there's a term Jesuitical reasoning. <laughs> and, and that goes directly back to dialectic. The Eastern Church, there are no Jesuits um, because the emphasis is on the unity of it all. Uh, so to divide things up not only gets it goes against you know the the theology of the matter it goes against the faith of uh, you 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 um in the eastern church you one and to a certain degree in the western church don't want to make too sharp a distinction but there is a difference in the eastern church it's the experience that I want to say feeds the soul and leads to a communion with the divine. In the Western Church, yeah, there there is that too. You know, you can plenty of examples of that, but there's also a notion that one can approach it intellectually. Um, with with analytical reasoning, uh, and and why is that? Why is analytical reasoning to a certain degree acceptable in the Western Church, but really it's not uh, has not been um, in the Eastern Church and. I I think it does go back to different flavors of Neoplatonism, the the uh, different ways that um, you know Augustine, for example, who was essential for amalgamating Neoplatonist thought with Christian theology, was not uh, accepted very much in the Eastern Church. The, the, I think the translations into Greek of of Augustine occurred very late, 14th century or so. Why? Why was Augustine accepted in 
and highly praised in the Western church, but not in the Eastern church. And I think it, it, that's not, that that's more chicken and egg. <laughs> uh, I, uh, and, and, and basically that that's the limit that, that I reached. I, I could not go any further in, in my investigation because uh, I just don't know. I think we got we got time for one more uh, question here, um, and something that occurred to me as uh, when I was reading your book is it so if if uh, uh, when did if ever uh, if Russian culture discover dialectic if it wasn't in the period you're talking about in the book, and you know as I was thinking about that. Uh, I, I was thinking that perhaps the 19th century might be the best uh, candidate. Uh, you were saying earlier you saw quite a few continuities through Peter's reign with the the pre uh, Peter period that some other historians do. So I'm just wondering what you what you think about that that idea. I mean, is there a point at which we can say that uh, dialectic was in fact uh, uh, discovered, or is that even a, a useful question to ask? Well, it's a useful question, uh, but <laughs> uh, from the Eastern Church's point of view, it never really. No, I'm open to contradiction <laughs> on this, but as far as I am aware, it it never really became part, or has never really became become part of the. Uh, of, of the ways of theology in the Eastern Church. But uh, knowledge about what was going on or what had gone on in Western Europe uh, does come in in the 18th century, 19th century um, in, into Russia in, in terms of things of this world. And that leads into, that's already when secularization is uh, coming to the fore. So there is now a place in Russian uh, intellectual thought uh, for analytical reasoning, but at a more a secular, uh, in, in the secular realm uh, than, than in the theological realm. And, and yes, I think Dostoevsky is is a, a fascinating example of this. It was some people have called him a, a, a philosopher who wrote his philosophy in fiction, <laughs> novels, and short stories. Uh, which, yeah, he 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 was thinking through these issues, uh, many many of these issues. What it, what does it mean? To be a uh, a genuine Christian in a secular age, uh, and you know, I regret <laughs> that he didn't get to uh, complete his his trilogy, his proposed trilogy of uh, Brothers Karamazov. But there is enough there in what we do have of his to see the way his thinking was going. Uh, on on that issue. 
I've I've long thought of uh, the the scene where Alyosha simply kisses his brother uh, in the, in the cafe as being its own kind of apophatic uh, theology, where we've defined uh, God by by silence rather than by you know analytical explanation or reasoning. Yes, and and when Father Zosima bows down to Dimitri. And, and Elisha said, well, why did you do that? It's because of the suffering he's going through. Well, suffering in right. the Neoplatonic Bernard of Clairvaux view, that's the way to divine, to the divine. So, so summing up here, since we're about, about out of time, uh, do you think it'd be fair to say that, that your overall argument here is that uh, – the reason we think Rus culture was silent wasn't because it was actually silent, but because it was speaking. I think the word you used was on a different frequency. Yeah. Uh, that, that seemed uh, fair enough. Yes, and and the the um, you know icons are very important. The um, the various uh, compendia of uh, of uh, Quotations, sayings from the Bible and holy writings, saints' lives—all of these. These are not intellectually silent. They may, to the outsider, they may appear boring, or you know, well, so what? Kind has that kind of reaction. But once you get into them, you, you, you. At least one thinks, one sees. Uh, quite a little, uh, quite a lot of of uh, intellectual thought, thinking going on, not dialectical, to be sure, uh, but it is not silent. There, 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 there are tons of things that are written. There are tons of icons that, you know, by the late fifteenth, early sixteenth century, many of the icons needed handbooks <laughs> to explain to the viewer what was in the icon. Uh, they were so complex. Uh, so yes, this, this, the, it was in, Roos was intellectually silent in terms of, in contrast to Western Europe. And the, the, the idea in Western Europe, you know, intellectual became almost a synonymous with critical of the existing structure of things you know at a secular level so mm. uh, if if one was just supportive of the monarch or the establishment as we used to say in in the 60s that wasn't considered, <laughs> that wasn't considered intellectual <laughs> intellectual you had to be critical well in in the Eastern Church, no, you that was not acceptable to be critical uh, of, of of things. So there there were other outlets for this intellectual activity, and and the the point being that we should look at Western Europe, medieval Western Europe, as an anomaly, not as a standard by which to judge other cultures. It, in many ways, it was a unique singularity. Um, and once what one has a, 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 
a broader perspective of what else was going on in world history at the time, the more it stands out as uh, an oddity, <laughs> with an oddity that developed into, among other things, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, <laughs> modern secular age, uh, but an anomaly nonetheless. Well, uh, thank you, John. That's a pretty, uh, uh, there's a lot of food for thought in that final, uh, final thought you offered up there. So I'll certainly be kicking that over myself in future. So thanks for being with us. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for letting me go on and on. Oh, you bet. Bye now. Bye. <laughs>